Morning, Grace Church. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 14 through 21. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Good morning again. All right. Early early on in ministry, for several reasons, some good and some not so good, I found myself in charge of just about every aspect of ministry that I was a part of. Well, as I have matured and as the churches that I've been a part of have matured, it's been an increasingly and somewhat surprisingly great joy. I say surprisingly in the sense that it it, it feels like to step back. I I love doing ministry and being a part of ministry, and and it feels like to step back from that would, would... Take joy. It's less that I, but it's been surprisingly uh, in an increase in joy to see so many others use their gifts to build up the church in ways I I never could. What do I mean by that? It is clearly God's design. It is clearly God's design for churches to be healthiest when they aren't dependent upon any one person or even any small group of people's gifts. Instead, God's design is for churches to be healthiest when every member is using their gifts in proportion to their faith for the glory of God and the good of the whole. One of the things I I love the most about Missions Week is that in many ways it is that. Missions Week is mainly put on by a group of men and women who have been gifted by God with the burden to see Jesus named in every corner of the earth and with the desire to see the rest of us join them in that, in that burden. They work throughout the year. This is just one week of what they do all year. They work throughout the year to think carefully about missions, to to make sure they're thinking biblically about what it is and isn't, to teach regularly on it, to keep it in front of us, to promote it among us, to send missionaries into the field, train up and send out missionaries, and then to support the missionaries and help us help them support missionaries that have been sent. And so Missions Week is one piece of this larger ministry of people with particular gifts. It's a ministry to us, and it's also a ministry through us. And so again, as always, I, Kyle would know how many years this is. It's, it's quite a few years. What is it? Ten? I feel like we should have t-shirts or something, the 10-year anniversary of Missions Week at Grace Church. But as always, I'm very thankful to the missions team for their hard work 
and inviting us into what they're always working on all year long. I, I see it, it pops up on the calendar, and I briefly remember to pray for them when, when we see missions, uh, missions team meeting coming up. But it, it, it's year after year after year they've done this. And so thanks, Luke and Elizabeth, especially as they head our missions team. But it is our collective prayer, mine and the elders along with the missions team. It's also our aim, what we're working towards, that God would see fit. Newly baptized young ladies, hear this, because this is what you just got baptized into. It is our prayer and aim that God would see fit to use this week to give us greater clarity into what God's Word says about missions in order that we would engage more faithfully into what God has called us to in missions, all of us. And so that's what Missions Week is all about. Well, this sermon has a bit narrower of a focus. For it, for this sermon, my prayer and aim is, is twofold. First, which has four parts, but just bear with me. Twofold, first one. I mean to help you understand a, a simple sentence, which bleeds into a couple more for Paul in Romans 15. I mean to help you understand the Apostle Paul's mission in life as articulated in Romans 15, 21. I'll... I'll, I'll tell you now, I'm going to let some, you know, some of my steam out where you're all sitting there wondering, what is it? I'm going to tell you right now. His aim is to preach the gospel where it has not already been named. So I want to help you understand the Apostle Paul's mission as articulated in Romans 15, 21, where it came from, where he got that mission directly from God. And as an obvious implication of the gospel that he was proclaiming, I want you to see what it cost him, which as I think I'll help you to see plainly, was every earthly comfort and how he was able to joyfully endure that steep cost through faith in the surpassing greatness of Christ Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing is I want to call all of us, every one of us, to join him in that mind that understands God and the gospel in the way that he does, the heart that is filled with affection for God and the gospel of God, and in his actions to take the gospel everywhere and especially where it isn't. So let me say that again. I hope and pray that the Spirit of God would be pleased to use the sermon, this text, in conjunction with all of Missions Week to help us focus especially on naming Jesus in the places in this world that he has not yet been named. And so right off the bat, before I pray, I'm about to pray, before I pray and as we're working through the text, I want this question to be rattling around in your brain. I want to welcome you to Missions Week by asking you, is Jesus worth it? Is your understanding of Jesus, as you consider Jesus, is he just the nice dude you hang up in a picture on the wall? Is he, is he just the kind of guy you color in coloring books and give your kids stickers for? Is he the kind of guy that you'll pray to once in a while when it's convenient and then go on with your life? But is, is your understanding of Jesus worth messing your plans up for? Is it worth spending your money differently for? Is it worth putting yourself or your family at risk for? Is, it, is he worth giving your life for? Let's pray, and I hope to help you see from the word of God that he is this times a million. God, I, I pray that above all, that's what we would see this morning. Above all, we would see that you are infinitely glorious, that you are greater than we could ever imagine, and that because of that, no price that we might pay to faithfully 
proclaim the name of Jesus Christ anywhere in this world is too steep for the treasure that is ours in Christ Jesus. May we see that. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing I want you to see, as I said, was Paul's mission. What was he about? What was he, what was he doing as he's writing Romans 15 especially? In other words, I want to begin by answering a simple question, and that is, what had Paul primarily given his life to in Christ? He tells us in the passage you see on the, on the screen. In this brief passage, having expressed his pleasure and the authenticity of the faith of the Roman Christians and the manner of their life, the way it was playing itself out and how they lived, namely that they were full of goodness, they were full of understanding, they were able to teach faithfully the word of God, Paul reminded them in, in, the, in that context of his life's work. Look at verse 16. It is to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles and the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul had given his entire life to proclaiming the good news of salvation and life in Jesus Christ, primarily to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people of the world. Other apostles, namely Peter, or especially Peter, spent their lives proclaiming Christ primarily among the Jews. But Paul was specifically charged with doing so for the rest of the world. This is a staggering grace. If you know your Bible, if you know the Old Testament, if you know the prevailing mindset of the children of Abraham at this time, this is a staggering and somewhat surprising expression of the love of God for the world. While most among Abraham's children believe that Christ would be a political and military ruler who would lead Israel back to a place of great prominence over and above the nations, Paul's life's mission showed that God's love was expressed differently. Rather than a powerful king like David who would rule for the prosperity of Israel, hear this, that Christ would lay his life down for the prosperity, that is the salvation, of the whole world. The last few verses of this passage make this mission even a little bit more focused still. Look at 19 to 21. Paul says that I do all this so that from Jerusalem and all the way to Lycurium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ and thus, and here it is, make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. It's a quote from Isaiah 52. In Isaiah 52 and 53, we, we often hear of 53 around Christmas time, but it is a promise that God made through Isaiah of a suffering servant who would bless the people of God. Well, here Paul identifies Jesus as that promised suffering servant. What's more, he also understood himself, that is, Paul understood himself to be a part of the fulfillment of the last part of this prophecy in chapter 52. That is, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. Paul understood himself to be fulfilling that as he proclaimed Christ to people who had never heard before, as he proclaimed Christ primarily among the Gentiles. By doing that, truly, Jesus was named where he had not been named before. 
He was heard of so that people could understand where he had never been heard of before. What a remarkable thing this is, Grace Church. God's love through Jesus extended as it was always intended to do beyond Israel to the very ends of the earth. And Paul was one of the chief messengers of that good news. Just think for a minute how glad the world must have been to hear this good news from him, right? That's what we expect. I mean, what great news this is that Christ Jesus is the Savior of all who will receive him in faith. The world must have been so eager to hear this. I'll come back to that in just a minute. But before we move on to the next part of this, which is where where did Paul get this mission? Where did it come from? What it cost him and why he continued anyway. Let me let me ask you now, prayerfully, and I mean prayerfully, right now, you know, to say it out loud, but but ask God in your heart, in your head, right now, ask him that he would help you consider the mission of your life. Let me say let me say that a little bit differently. What is the mission of your life? I'm asking you to ask God to help you see what the mission of your life is. We are all living out of one. You can't not. By God's design, we are all driven by something. That's our mission, in the sense that I mean it anyway. Perhaps it is to be as comfortable as possible. I know lots of people where that is, they would, they maybe never thought of it in those terms, but functionally, they live to make their lives as comfortable as possible. And maybe, maybe their family along with it, along with them. Perhaps it is to be as rich or successful as possible. Perhaps it is to be a good mom or a good dad. Perhaps it is to be kind to others and do as much good as possible. Perhaps it is to simply maximize your own happiness, which goes even maybe a bit beyond comfort. Perhaps you've never thought in such concrete terms. You just sort of, you just, you just sort of do what seems right as things present themselves to you. Perhaps it's something more biblical still, like honoring God. But the fact is, every one of us lives out of some type of mission. And I'm again asking you to ask God to help you identify what yours is. Because one of our aims in Missions Week, honestly, one of our aims every single Sunday and everything we do is this, but one of our particular aims of Missions Week is to help you consider whether or not your mission, whatever it is, needs to be recalibrated. In fact, we're basically telling you it does. <laughs> All of ours does. Are you spending your life as as fully as possible for the cause of Christ? And of course, the answer is no for all of us. And so it, all of our lives' missions need to be recalibrated. Now, what that means to live as fully as possible for the cause of Christ is going to look differently in each of us according to our God-given gifts and burdens. But all of us are called to that end, to live as fully as possible for the cause of Christ. And specifically, Grace, right now, would you prayerfully consider whether or not doing so ought to include a greater measure of working like Paul to bring the gospel to the places it's never been or has no current witness to it. Would you pray that? That's a dangerous prayer. Young baptized ladies, that's a dangerous prayer, but I want you to pray it. All right, so with that, where did Paul's mission come from? This idea that he was given by God to proclaim the gospel primarily among Gentiles and primarily where it had never been named before. Where did that come from? 
Well, in the very beginning of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 5, Paul answered that question in broad terms. It came, he said, through, he said, through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, that is Jesus' name among the nations. Paul's mission to proclaim Christ through the entire unreached world came directly from Jesus. Paul repeated that truth at the end of verse 15 and in the 16 in our passage. Because of the grace given me by God, God gave him a particular grace to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Paul's mission was graciously given to him by God, Grace Church. And here's the key. So it is for you and me. Every one of us are made by God for a mission and a big part of that mission, or perhaps one way to describe that whole of the mission is to glorify God by enjoying him forever by making disciples of all nations. That's our mission. God's given that to us. That's remarkable. God's word tells us that we glorify God and enjoy him forever in particular ways. That's not just a concept. It's not just a theory. It's, it's not just a philosophical idea that we glorify God and enjoy him forever. He means that, as Matt shared with us in Berea this morning, to become incarnate. It has to have flesh put on it. It has to work itself out in what we actually do. And one of the key ways that we do that is by proclaiming Christ, the good news that is rescued us from our sin to the whole world, that they too might be saved, to name Jesus where he has not yet been named. And again, the heart of Missions Week is to help us all consider this co-mission that God has given to us, has put on us, that we might give ourselves an increasing measure to it in whatever form God has gifted us for. All right, so we read in verse 19 that Paul proclaimed Jesus from Jerusalem and into a whole region. Everyone in that region, at least every group of people, had the opportunity to hear of Christ crucified. Again, his point is throughout all that, he had fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. That's awesome. I don't know if I can say that. I can barely say that in my own house, let alone in an entire region. But again, this was the love-driven mission of God for Paul to bless the world. And so I ask you again, how do you imagine the world received it? They must have just been so excited, right? They must have just named, built statues for him and named streets after him and, and, and fallen over themselves to thank him for this good news. And of course, some did. Some believed and were saved. But as you know, that's not mainly what happened. If you reconsider your own mission and therein give yourself to, in greater measure to proclaiming Jesus to the ends of the earth, I'm asking you, what do you think you should expect? To be thanked and honored as, as, as ought to happen? Perhaps, maybe God will do that through your ministry, maybe. But I imagine, however, that more than likely, if you join in Paul's mission, you will join in his price. From the moment that Paul trusted in Jesus and accepted the call on his life, Paul was in a near constant state of severe persecution and suffering, or at least the threat of those things. The threat always loomed, even when the persecutions themselves waned for a while. 
the kind of life that Paul lived. Parents, think of your great desire for your kids. What do you want from them in this life? Well, I can tell you right now, and I'm about to show you, that the life Paul lived was about as far from the kind most people draw up for themselves and their children as you could possibly imagine. I can almost guarantee it, without knowing I was preaching the sermon, if I said, write down what you want for your kids, none of the things I'm about to tell you would be on it. And so you need to listen with new ears, and you need to see the Word of God with new eyes. Just listen to this briefly to help you see what I mean. We're going to do a brief flyover of Paul's life from Acts. This is really neat. It's not neat, but it's, it's neat that we get to do it so fast. And then we get to hear about all that and a bit more from 2 Corinthians, Paul's own words in describing this. The beginning of Acts chapter 8, Paul, who was, his name then was Saul, was working really hard to persecute the church. Rather than proclaiming the gospel, he was trying to silence and squash the gospel. He was a Pharisee. If you've been here with us through John's gospel, I'm preaching through John's gospel normally. Jesus had all kinds of run-ins with this group of Pharisees who believed they were doing the will of God by putting Jesus to the side, believing him to be a blasphemer. Paul was one of those. Beginning of 8, because of that, he was trying to persecute those who proclaimed Christ. The opening line of chapter 8 is this. And Paul approved of Stephen's execution. Stephen was a Christian who was proclaiming Jesus. And Paul approved of Stephen's execution by stoning him to death. By the beginning of Acts 9, however, just a chapter later, while on the way to do further damage to the disciples of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus himself revealed himself to Paul. And Paul was subsequently converted to faith in Jesus and in, in dramatic fashion and sent on this mission by Jesus. And so in verse chapter 9, verse 19, we read, For some days, now we're talking days, Paul came to faith in Christ. He spent just a few days uh, with the disciples at Damascus, and then immediately he proclaimed Christ in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. So talk about a short on-ramp. He, he was persecuting Christians, was saved within a few days, learned a few things about Jesus from the disciples, and then began proclaiming Christ. And from that point on, Grace, for 30 years, more than 30 years, Paul stayed on mission and consequently never knew another moment in his life in which he was free from suffering or its threat. Listen, beginning with chapter 9, verse 23, right after his conversion, the Jews plotted to kill him right away. There were death threats on his life in Damascus. The 12 were initially afraid, afraid of him and rejected him as he tried to join them. The Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews, sought to kill him then in Jerusalem. This is all still chapter 9, different groups of people. He was persecuted and run out of Antioch. He, and an, an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews conspiring together with the rulers to mistreat Paul and stone him. He was, in fact, stoned by a different group later and left for dead. They actually thought he was dead in Lystra. He was opposed by believing Jews who insisted that Gentiles must obey the law to be saved. Paul was forced to separate from his close friend and co-worker. He had relational difficulties because of proclaiming the gospel where it had never been proclaimed. He was dragged before a Philippian council, attacked by a crowd, beaten by rods, 
by the magistrates and then thrown into prison. He was cast out of Philippi later. I'm not even half done. Jealous Jews in Thessalonica formed a mob of wicked men that tried to attack him before forcing him to leave the city. The same jealous Jews followed him from Thessalonica to Berea and forced him out of there too. He was mocked in Athens by Gentiles. He was the victim of a coordinated attack and taken before the tribunal in Corinth. If you know anything about the geography, he's getting around. His, his persecution isn't located to a city. The same, or he was the victim in Ephesus. He was opposed by a man named Demetrius to the point that the whole city, it says, became enraged with him. He was plotted against by the Jews again in Greece. Jews from Asia tracked him down in Jerusalem and stirred up a crowd which seized him, dragged him outside of the city gates, yelled at him, beat him, and sought to kill him again. He was arrested and detained by the Romans and stretched out to be flogged. He was put in jail. More than 40 Jews made a plot against him and bound themselves by an oath to neither eat or drink until they had killed him. He was detained by Felix for more than two years in Caesarea. He was shipwrecked on an island and then made it to an island. He was bitten by a viper, which is a pretty cool story in Acts 28. And he was placed on house arrest in Rome for two years before being murdered, killed for his faith in Jesus. Parents, how does that line up with the list you made for the goals you have for your children? Kids, how does that line up with the goals you have for yourself as you get older? How's that for a response to the love that God had shown through the sharing of the good news of salvation in Christ to the world? That's not all. There's more. That's not all of it. Paul himself described what his own life was like, including some of what we just read in Acts and more still. Consider his own words, 2 Corinthians 11.23. Compared to other followers of Jesus, Paul says, even compared to them, I have endured far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings. We just, in Acts, heard of a couple. He, he calls it countless beatings, often near death, five times, not one, <laughs> that we saw in Acts. I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I floated at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger, danger often at, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and in hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all of that, people opposing the gospel, even, he said, the people that have received the gospel and believed it by my ministry, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. I asked you earlier to consider your mission in life. I told you that we're all made by God for a mission and given a mission by God. And I asked you to consider joining Paul in his mission of proclaiming Jesus where he has not yet been named. But so as not to hide the cost, so as not to be coy about what that might mean, we just saw that by holding fast to his mission, I wanted you to see the truth of Paul's suffering. And so now I ask you again, will you join him? Will you pray for your children to join him? Will you consider giving yourself to the cause of reaching the unreached? Will you consider praying for our church, 
our nation and the whole world to this end, maybe the better question to ask is this. Is there anything you can think of as you contemplate the suffering that just Paul, he's, he's one of the early church followers of Jesus. Is there anything you can think of that would make that kind of mission worth it? That's the question. Is there anything you can think of to where if that were offered to you, that kind of life, you would say, sign me up? Is there anything? So what was Paul's motivation for this? Again, why would Paul willingly pay that price for over three decades? We're not talking like a semester abroad. We're not talking a a two-week mission trip somewhere. Three decades, more than that, and ultimately die a martyr's death. In a sense, answering that question is why Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. Grace, the first 11 chapters are the greatest story ever, the greatest reason ever as to why you should sign up for this. It's Paul telling his readers why he signed up for this. The first 11 chapters, Paul described the nature of the gospel that he had believed in, been saved by, and was proclaiming to the ends of the earth. And then the rest, 12 through 16, describe what life looks like in light of that. And so chapter 15, the mission that he's on is a response to the gospel that he wrote about in the first 11 chapters. The good news of Jesus Christ is such good news that to receive it means that there is no cost that outweighs it. Do you know that gospel? Paul wrote that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Salvation from death and the wrath of God that is upon us and all mankind since Adam for our sin. The gospel is of Jesus is not new. Even though so many had missed it, it was woven and promised throughout the entire Old Testament, planned from eternity past by the triune God, promised from the beginning, made flesh in Jesus. The gospel is the good news of salvation, Paul said in Romans chapter 3. Not for people, or or for, for people whose sin made it impossible to even want salvation. The mindset in the flesh does not submit to God, nor can it do so. Paul explained that the heart of the gospel is the fact that God made a way for mankind to be saved apart from keeping the law, apart from any good work that we could do on our own, apart from any merit in us or that anything we could offer to him, namely by grace through faith in Jesus who died in our place. In chapter 4, Paul continued to expand on the good news, teaching that in Jesus we are not only forgiven by God, which would be awesome all by itself, but also, and then into chapter 5, that we have perfect peace with God because of the gospel. We were once his enemies, and now we have perfect peace with him as his children. We were united with Adam in sin and death, but now through faith we are united with Jesus in righteousness and life. Our old slavery to sin is gone. The chains are broken. We've been set free from its mastery and are now free and empowered to do good works, the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. That's awesome. We are also dead to death and alive to God in Christ. Chapter 8, Grace in Romans, Paul taught that the gospel is the good news that there is now and never ever again will be condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God did for us what we, what our own obedience could never do. Jesus provided us with the righteousness that God required. 
And the Holy Spirit of God lives in us to empower us now to live as God intends, as his sons and daughters. And all of this comes from God's sovereign choice to save a people for himself, chapter 9, according to his perfect wisdom and his perfect love, not because there is anything in us that was worthy or able to choose him. What's more, as if all of this wasn't overwhelmingly good enough news, the gospel is for people of every tribe and tongue and nation. It is for anyone and everyone who will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. All of that was to help you see, and I see, something simple but important. The gospel is the greatest news of all time. It is such good news that to believe it, it is to know that it is worth any and every cost to receive it and give it away. We simply don't understand the gospel if it, that is, if he, Jesus, is the gospel, is not our greatest treasure. That's what Paul meant when he wrote 2 Corinthians 4. So we do not lose heart. Have all those things from Acts, all those things from later in 2 Corinthians in mind. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For in this light, momentary affliction, would you call what I just described light or momentary 30 years? I'd call it heavy and long, but he calls it this light, momentary affliction compared to eternity, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's exactly what Paul meant when he wrote Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I told you that this building was on fire, the only reasonable response would be to get out quickly, get help, help others do the same. It would be inconvenient. No one wants to deal with that mess. It'd be a bit scary, but nothing else makes sense. If I told you that you have cancer, the only reasonable response would be to go see an oncologist. It would definitely be inconvenient, painful, and probably expensive. But again, nothing else makes sense. If I told you that I'd hidden a great treasure, or somebody had hidden a great treasure on the other side of some mountain in Montana, the only reasonable response would be for you to begin planning an expedition to go get it. You might need to learn some new skills, orienteering or mountain climbing or whatever. You'd probably need to step away from your job a while and taking on a financial risk, you'd probably be putting yourself in danger and that you wouldn't otherwise have. Your friends and family would probably think you crazy and strain your relationships. And yet if the treasure is truly great, nothing else makes sense. To be clear, the heart of what Paul was describing in our passage includes all of that and more. To do what we're calling you to do, more importantly, to do what the Word of God is calling us to do or participate in, includes a life that is far less convenient than it would be otherwise. It includes danger and fear that you would not have otherwise. It includes the need to work at learning new things, maybe new languages and new cultures, like Matt talked about this morning, that we wouldn't need to do otherwise. It includes a financial cost cost and risk that makes the American dream a whole lot more difficult than it would be otherwise. And it includes relational difficulties that wouldn't normally be there. And to be clear, in Missions Week, and in this sermon in particular, that's what we're asking. Because it's the only thing that makes sense in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. People need the gospel. They cannot be saved without it. Being sent will cost you. 
But in the gospel, you already have a treasure far greater than any inconvenience, even death itself. So what do we do with all this? We close with just a couple of real practical things. Number one, learn the gospel. Learn it. If this isn't the gospel you know, if the gospel you know isn't a treasure that surpasses any inconvenience, any difficulty, learn the gospel. You probably know it, but I promise there are greater depths to plumb because that's what we'll be doing for eternity. That's what heaven is, is continuing to experience more and more and more of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are to be increasingly moved by the gospel into the world, it will be because you are increasingly learning the glory of the gospel. Spend time, real time, learning it with the help of others. Number two, believe the gospel. Knowing the gospel and believing it are two different things. Our lives constantly reflect not mainly our belief, or our, our knowledge, but our belief. It is one thing to be able to explain the basic tenets of the gospel. It is another thing to trust entirely in them, to live as if every one of them were true. Fight with God's help to grow your belief in the gospel in every area of your life. Number three, share it. Share it here. Share it now. Share it with those around you and watch the power of God to change hearts and minds and lives. Marvel at his goodness here where you know the culture and you know the language and the cost is less steep. Learn its power by faithfully sharing it and watching it work. Number four, take the gospel. Share it where you are and take it where it isn't. Again, that's the heart of Missions Week this year, where Christ has not yet been named. It is what we most want you to consider growing in. Begin praying about it and working towards taking it or supporting those who will to places it doesn't already exist. Again, I want to encourage you freshly, consider Engage Global. Consider the email that went out earlier this week to serve with Marty this summer. Number five, support the takers of the gospel. Renew your commitment to at least reading their newsletters. I mean, you talk about the cost that Paul paid. How about read our missionaries' newsletters? Pay that cost. That's a good start. Read their newsletters and then pray over them and pray for them and check in on them and and visit them and financially support them. Lastly, pray the gospel. All of this is only possible with God's help. Honoring God in our learning, believing, sharing, taking, and supporting are all gifts from God. It's all a gift from God. The desire to do any of that is a gift from God. Pray for yourself. Pray for the rest of our church. Pray for those that we will share with. Pray for those who have gone. Pray for those at the ends of the earth to receive and grow in the gospel of Christ. God is perfectly spreading his kingdom throughout the earth, and he is kind enough to invite us to join him in that through through the church's discipleship of the nations. We get to participate in the growing of the kingdom of God. Pray that God would grant you sufficient understanding, faith, and love, and urgency, and courage, and awe to join him in that. So grace, the gospel is the good news, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Jesus died because we have all fallen short of his glory. You will not go to heaven because you get missions or anything else perfectly right. Jesus died for your missions apathy as much as he did your lust and your anger. But because you are going to heaven through faith in Christ, because the gospel has taken a hold of you, the promise of God is that he is already working a missionary heart in you. Let us therefore, with God's help, name Christ everywhere no matter the cost, and the certain knowledge that the gospel is the power of God 
to save the world and worth every ounce of suffering.